When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2, the deuce. Oh, that was a good one. Nice. And my main man, Will, the thrill. Hello. So, um, yeah, no, we. there's been surprisingly little amount of people passing away, and I think that is a fantastic thing. That's a, it, got, it got to where us doing a weekly necrology was almost as long as the episode <laughs> yeah i think we needed a break yeah. 2020 was so was so horrendous like every week it's like well here's another list of incredibly impressive and awesome people that are dead and we would have to discuss them for you know like an hour so this is actually a refreshing change of pace <laughs> i will say there was a death hoax that almost got me but then i started looking it up and it was it was a hoax which was irene Kara who did uh, the Flashdance thing. She did a couple themes for the the films in the eighties, and she was a great actress too. So, uh, but it that's was a strange, a lot. That's a that's a strange hoax. It is also yeah. why why do people do death hoaxes? What do they get out of that? Like I don't I don't understand. Don't be well. Stupid. I know that sometimes people the 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 anniversary of somebody's death will pop up on people's Facebook memories or whatever, and they'll share it, and people will have forgotten that they died. Yeah. And, and they'll start, so, and you'll get a text. Oh man, did you know such and such died? And you'd be like, Yeah, like ten years ago. Actually, you know what they've started doing now? There's an algorithm on Facebook that if it's a there's an article on this uh, the the site, it'll say, Hey, you know this article is more than two years old, right? Mm-hmm. So that's probably helpful. Yeah. So it's super helpful because people will be like, Oh yeah, they they died. I don't need to research. Yeah. So well, unfortunately, someone who uh, who we can confirm did pass away is. Uh, David Bowie, who uh, I guess we're about to roll into part three of um, an incredibly eventful life, one that is so difficult to boil down to, you know, a month's worth of episodes. Yeah, we can't do it. Yeah, we may just not even try. We may just do five <laughs> or six of these. I just, no, I, I finally made it to the 80s in this episode. So if you'll remember. Crack I, the I did, 80s, yeah. I did, yeah. I did 1975 to 1980. So. All right. So we almost skimmed videos. So yeah. we're really close. And I'm just going to keep going back and urging you, you know, we could save a lot of time if you just skip 10 machine, which I think would be fine by, with everybody. We don't hit it yet. There are. No, I mean, when we, when we get there, feel free to realize it, some, some wonderful time savings on uh, 
not talking about Tin Machine. <laughs> it's not quite Van Halen 3, but it's not Dave's finest work. The thing is, he came up with like 13, I, I thought it was 11. It comes out, it's like more like 13 albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why it wasn't counted was I think two of them are live. So mm-hmm. studio albums, I think he came out with 11. But I mean, cheese and crackers. This, this, this is only covering five years of his life. Yeah. And it's 19 pages long. Unbelievable. So we're going to jump into that right Let's now. barrel on in. Yep. So on Wednesday, January the 8th, which was David Bowie's uh, birthday, he spent the night with uh, Ava Cherry, Coco Schwab, at the opening of a gallery. I think it's called the Les, the Les Jack Gallery. I'm going to screw that up. I'm sorry if you run the gallery. But there were... Les Jack. <laughs> 60 artists had exhibited their interpretations of the condition of the tie today and there was Andy Warhol so I'm guessing they're getting along a little bit better now hmm. Larry Rivers, Yoko Ono, Roman Polanski, uh, Karl Lagerfeld, Lance Loud and Richard Bernstein who was one of the artists that's a uh, quite a motley crew there yeah 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 it is yeah. So at this point, Coco, who is, we're going to hear a lot more about Coco through. A dude that paints soup cans and a woman that screams things. Yeah, I've told you before, that's how we torture our neighbors. Is <laughs> yeah. If they get too loud, we just turn on our surround sound and play Yoko Ono as loud as possible. They've earned they, it. They've earned it, but they've also gotten quieter. So I think that that's. Uh, so thank that's you, more, Yoko Ono. Thank you, Yoko Ono. So we're going to be talking a lot about Coco, who is uh, his personal assistant now. She's kind of been elevated from the His Girl Friday kind of position. Uh, And in reality, she was his chaperone and custodian. She actually knew how to intimidate and aggravate just about everybody she came across. And David loved it. So she would just totally go off on people on David's behalf. And he'd just be in the shadows, like one hand up, cackling. It was fantastic. And the reason why he put up with Coco was that he felt like she treated him like the only person in the world. So where was his wife? That's a really good question. I'm not going to answer it. (laughs) I don't know it. And uh, as a father, he had kind of become hands off. But what's crazy is the, the more I do this like breakdown of the timeline, at some point they, he does become a really good dad. Well, they both acknowledged that it was a marriage of convenience, correct? Yes. Right. Where yeah. he, they both said like, ah, this, we, we, we're not, uh, this isn't uh, a lifetime commitment. This isn't true love. This is just, um, yeah, our name is written on a piece of paper. It's a and formality. We have sex yeah. And we have sex sometimes. Oh, sometimes is an understatement, but we're going right. to get there. So on uh, January 29th, 1975, Bowie's new manager, who was a entertainment lawyer, Michael Lipman, began legal proceedings against Tony DeFreeze. This is the manager that we were talking about before. He moved for a motion to declare an end to all agreements between Bowie and Main Man, including publishing, management, and recording controls. That's what Tony DeFries had, which is so scary. And it was almost in perpetuity. So, And rather typical of early artist contracts that we've covered. Yeah. Yes. First album, they just get boned outright. Yep. Yeah. And 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 the they're basically the framework is in place for them to continue to get bound for the remainder yeah. of their contract if they don't have a good attorney or new management or somebody that can get them out of it. But that's what happened with uh, Tom Petty, correct? It's happened with Tom Petty. That's what happened if you remember back uh, with Van Halen. Yeah. Where after two platinum albums, they owed Warner Brothers a million dollars. The Beastie yeah. Boys were another one. 
Yeah. What Beastie Boys were another. I mean, it's, it's, this is, it's a lengthy list. Almost everybody that we've covered on this show, except for Led Zeppelin. <laughs> because yep. they had a scary gun-toting former professional wrestler as their manager. Yeah, you don't want to mess with that guy, so... Right. And, and Rush, because no one knew what to make of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, weird no, no, nobody yeah. Nobody looked at them early on and had dollar signs in their eyes, probably. Exactly, yeah. Right. I think Weird Al's been pretty much safe, too, so... Yeah. I mean, so uh, Lippman and Bowie met with Ken Glacey and Iberman and Hannington at RCA. When Bowie announced his intentions to leave DeFreeze, they reassured Bowie of their loyalty to him because of course they would, you know, why, why, why choose the manager over the talent? And they granted him his request, which was financial support, office space, and a car. And that was because at the whole time he had actually been relying on the main man limo, which he had been paying for. As for the new album, Bowie had the masters in a bank vault, but the new recordings with Lennon uh, were still at Electric Lady, and only Main Man was legally entitled to pick up the tapes, but Hannington retrieved them in the dead of night from the studio. Oh, wow. So he just kind of broke in and took the tapes. DeFreeze later asked Iberman why they had sided with Bowie when they were legally bound to Main Man, and Iberman explained that in any such dispute, RCA would always side with the artist. After all, he pointed out to DeFreeze, you can't sing. <laughs> yeah. You can't sing or make us any money, and he can. Yeah. So a lot of things did happen that summer. Uh, not all of them were edifying. First, David came to discover that the main man operation that he long believed was equally owned by him and Tony. He actually found out that he was footing the bill for one of the most extravagant overmanned tours that he had ever undertaken. Wow. So he was paying for people to get nose jobs boob jobs uh he was paying for transportation he was paying for all of the the whole road crew he was paying he was footing the bill for everything that's alarming expensive shopping trips because tony's idea was the more that you pump into an artist the more you spoon feed like an image to the public the more they're going to eat it up and bowie was the one making the money so dufries took it all and just disseminated it how he saw fit when he found out that he had almost nothing, he went into shock. And so insomnia and anxiety took over and his coke habit reached a new height. Which is impressive for the late 70s. Right, right. Yeah. And I was going to say, if, 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 if David Bowie says, now if you think I, I used to do a lot of two. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. There's, there's, there's somebody coming up saying something that you're going to be like, oh God. He also had absolutely no appetite. So he's, he's freaking out. He can't sleep. He has no appetite. He's got anxiety. He's doing coke. You know, it's, and, uh, not, it's not great because, and he, I, you know, I'm not a doctor or a therapist, but I think the anxiety and lack of sleep perhaps are tied to doing large amounts of cocaine. You would think. <laughs> Those things, there, there may be a connection there. Well, on the tour, he, he had sustained himself on a diet of nothing but milk, hot peppers, and a Scarface level of cocaine. Wow. That's what he was living off of. It's alarming. Uh, yeah. inter interviews from that and footage from that period are ridiculous because he behaved like a robot and would spout bizarre responses to the most mundane of questions. And he would like snort and honk and blow throughout the whole thing to the point where it's almost unusable. Like... <laughs> Oh, wait, it gets better. <laughs> so 
English director Nicholas, I'm going to say his name wrong. I'm going to say Rogue was casting the lead role for the movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth. And see, Livinoff, she was David's agent in the time. And she represented their all, all their boutique people who are not necessarily known as actors or movie stars. So like someone like David Bowie is a musician, but can act. Right. That's more of a boutique actor. Okay. So it's it's a smaller pool of people and it's not exactly character actors. So it's not people like Steve Buscemi. It's more like Mick Jagger, mm-hmm. you know, Mick Jagger did a little bit of acting. Remember Mick Jagger wanted the role in Labyrinth. That's right. And so it was a smaller agency. So she had actually suggested Mick Jagger to the director. And this is a, a quote from Maggie Abbott, who is a casting agent. I tried to talk him into Mick, but Nick knew him so well that he said he wasn't what he had in mind. He wanted someone who looked frail, as if he had no bones in his body. And I immediately cried out, David Bowie. (laughs) He had just the charisma the character required. It had nothing to do with acting experience. She had seen Cracked Actor, and that's how she acquired a tape, and she showed them. So, quote from Bowie from 1976, Nick watched it, and I guess it was my attachment to Ziggy, the alter ego, that captured his interest and imagination. And my looks helped, too. He wanted a defined, pointed, stark face, which I had been endowed with. So, he ended up landing the role, which I think I'll go into a little bit later. But if you've never seen The Man Fell to Earth, they do have it on Criterion, and I think they actually have it on Prime. It's a very interesting film. Saturday, March 1st, uh, it was the 17th Annual Grammy Awards. In this took place in New York. Do the Grammys yeah. usually take place in New York? Or they, take uh, th- they did for a very long time, and then a contract required them to go to LA, but it's actually in the contract that every so many years it goes back to New York. Okay. So they were originally in New York, yes. Well, Bowie was invited to announce the nominations for Best Rhythm and Blues Performance by a Female Artist. And when he presented the Grammy to the winner, introducing them as the consummate rock performer, Bowie walked on and prepared his speech as Ladies and Gentlemen and Others. A quote from Bowie, before the show, I had been telling John Lennon that I didn't think America really got what I did, that I was misunderstood. Remember that I was in my 20s and out of my head. So the big moment came and I ripped open the envelope and announced the winner is Aretha Franklin. Aretha stepped forward and without so much as a glance in my direction, snatches the trophy out of my head and says, thank you, everybody. I'm so happy. I could even kiss David Bowie, which she didn't, and probably spun around and swanned off stage right. So I slunk off stage left. Joe John bounds over, gives me a big theatrical kiss and hug and says, see, Dave, America loves you. I just like these casually mentioning, you know, John Lennon. Like, oh, yes. Yeah, my buddy John. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want to pick up that name that you just dropped? Right. Yeah, I was going to say, put up a sign, watch for falling names. Yeah. Well, by the mid-70s, Bowie had undergone a full-scale makeover. Gone were those outrageous costumes and garish sets. In two short years, he released the albums David Live and Young Americans, the latter which featured the backing vocals of a young Luther Vandross, if you, for some reason, missed that. And this included the song Fame, which was co-written by John Lennon and Carlos Alomar. I don't know that. Which became Bowie's first American number one single. So I'm going to play Fame for you right now. Honestly, this is not one of my favorite songs by Bowie. It's memorable, though. It's memorable, but there's a a voice modulator that he uses that I don't like the way it bends his voice. That part. Yeah. It's Coleman Lennon? Yeah. 
and Carlos Alomar. All right, so here we go. Bang.
and we're back. All right. A song I, I bet his uh, buddy Mr. Warhol liked. <laughs> yeah. Well, you get 15 minutes of it, right? A theme, I would say, a, a theme he harked on fairly often. Yeah. Again, not a not a fan favorite, I think, but one of the most recognizable Bowie songs, I think. Yeah. I, I, just, I like I, it. I actually like the groove of it. I like it musically. The I kind of I kind of know what you're talking about. Go as you what you said going into it. There's kind of a weird like modulation that he does on his voice toward the end. That's a little strange. But yeah, uh, yeah. It's just it's not my favorite. I think uh, lyrically it's not my favorite. Melodically it's not my favorite. But the thing is, I do love John Lennon. And uh, for those who don't know, you want a fun fact? Fun fact. Yeah, John Lennon's actually singing background on that song that's crazy i, I didn't did. know he was involved in the song yeah. yeah i did not i did not know that here's the thing uh, they were pretty close friends they they were they kind of float in and out of each other's lives and okay. uh and i have a story later on in the episode about it so okay um it was while he was in america that david bowie started getting in trouble for the emergence of his next character okay thin white duke Right. Who was kind of a Hitler-esque figure. It was kind of a prick, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, no, it didn't, didn't Bowie himself describe him as uh, not a nice chap or something like that? Did yeah, I, I do have that quote a little bit later yeah, on. Yeah. But yeah, he. so uh, Bowie is quoted as saying, I have a very strong belief in fascism. <laughs> and he also said Adolf Hitler was one of the first rock stars. Oh, my. So... Well, first of all, is, is, is he has he embraced the character at this point already? I believe he's starting to. Okay. Also, also he's coked out of his mind. <laughs> he's all, I was going to say, also, he's doing a lot of coke. You know, if you take what he says and, and dissect it a little bit about Hitler being a rock star, you can actually kind of see what he's talking about, the cult of personality that, that there was around him. Not, not that he was a good dude or that, you know. His uh, ideas were great. Yeah, no, not not any, nothing, none of that. It's just that he was enigmatic and he held a weird sway over people and 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 stuff. And so and that he was a quote rock star is not necessarily a compliment. But if you kind of if you dissect what he might be saying there, or what the copious loads of bo- of booger sugar might be saying, it's really hard to tell. Um, <laughs> you can actually kind of see what he's saying. Yeah, and no one on the planet, please isolate what my brother just said. Yeah, listen to it in context. <laughs> Please listen to the whole thing in context. So, uh, in 1975, he received criticism from the UK music press after a performance that aired on the BBC. The Record Mirror wrote, his physical deterioration was sad to behold. His corpse-like appearance was only made more grotesque by the severe 50s-style haircut and ill-fitting suit. His voice, too, was an appalling shape, and it was pitiful to watch him aiming hoarsely at notes which he could once reach with ease. So they weren't kind. No, and the, and perhaps the copious amounts of said booger sugar are starting to take their toll on him. <laughs> yeah, by the end of 1975, though, he decided to dump ev- everybody. He dumped everyone. He didn't like the circus atmosphere. He didn't care too much for entourages. And of course, the money wasn't really there to have one anyway. <laughs> so he let everyone go except for Coco. He couldn't get rid of her because she knew where the bodies were buried. <laughs> and I don't know if that quote is literal or figurative, but it could be either. But she knew everything. Historians tend to identify 1975 as kind of the height 
of the 1970s paranoid gloom and doom and and that's when Bowie recorded Station to Station which was released in 1976 which he scrabbled for a way out of that psychological pit that he had dug himself for a while fretting that it was too late this is the Bowie and the America that we find so bleakly portrayed in The Man Who Fell to Earth and The Man Who Fell to Earth for those who don't know is a 1976 British science fiction film And the film follows an extraterrestrial crash lands on Earth and seeks a way to ship water to his planet, which is suffering from a severe drought, but finds himself at the mercy of human vices and corruption. It's a turd. (laughs) Complete. Did you see it? I I actually think I have seen it. Yes, a very long time. It's almost like cult classic bad. Yeah, it is. It actually is. It stars David Bowie, Candy Clark, Buck Henry, and Rip Torn. Rip Torn. And it, it, Rip Torn and Buck Henry thrown in, thrown in there. Yeah. It, it's a cult following. It definitely has, it, it's got, it's a cult classic. It's, it's like E.T. with lots of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Very thin people. Very mm-hmm. thin people. So because of its use of surreal imagery and Bowie's starring role as Thomas Jerome Newton, it's considered an important work of science fiction cinema. And I kind of agree with that because I, th- I put The Man Who Fell to Earth kind of in the same box as the original Dune. Hmm. Like you might, it's in your zeitgeist. Like it's in the zeitgeist. Like, please tell me more than five people that have watched Dune. Yeah, but Dune also had an entire mythos around it. The books, the world created by Frank Herbert. I don't know if it's as deep with The Man Who Fell yeah, to Earth. No offense to the people who made the film. This is David Bowie. <laughs> and it has Rip Torn, yeah. So, so there you go. But, but Rip Torn. Doing that sting. Yeah. Fair enough. So the paranoid superstar drug addicts relocates to the cocaine capital of the world. We have all seen that headline before, haven't we? With his divine creations, Ziggy was a distant memory. Like that was his big, like that for him at this moment, he's looking back and thinking that Ziggy is the biggest thing that he ever had and maybe will ever have. Because even when he, when he stars in a film, it still doesn't quite hit the mark. But Ziggy like hit at the right time. And even though he had fame, like literally the song Fame, which hit number one in America for the first time, you know, you got to think that he does feel still kind of like, is he still making it? Is he starting to lose it? Is it fading? So his marriage is totally headed for the rocks. His relationship with his child is detached at best. His empire is in ruins and he's disconnected from his mother, his brother and his best friend, George. So it's kind of weird that David had not moved to Los Angeles earlier because for musicians that day, the idea of the canyon was huge. So Laurel Canyon is the center of the American music scene at this time. This is the California sound, right? Yeah, it's the California sound that's coming out. And like, that's the thing. Have you ever actually been to like Wonderland Drive? With you, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's an area in Laurel Canyon that's near where the, the... wonderland murders happen that's it still looks like the 1970s 1960s 1970s it's trippy it's time warp it's it's super time warp like all the houses look like they're locked in that era there are people that are selling you know homemade soup like on the streets it's very weird but very cool so finding the right spot to move to had kind of been a point of contention because some people say it was Coco that chose the small, almost windowless 1950s, early 1960s property at 6 
37 North Doheny Drive when they moved in the spring of 1975. And Angie claims it was her that found the spooky place. Why was it spooky though? It had an indoor swimming pool. Uh, and it was actually just a few doors down from where six years earlier, Charles Manson's followers had murdered Sharon Tate. That's why I was ah, saying it's Benedict Canyon. Got it. And at first, Angie said the house was too small for what the family had required, but she was also adverse for the indoor swimming pool for all the usual reasons. Like you have a kid, it's a waste of money, bah, bah, bah. Like having an indoor swimming pool is not like the greatest thing in the world, but uh, the other reason was that she said that Satan lived in the swimming pool. And so oh. did David. Okay. Because David said that with his own eyes, I have seen him rising out of the water one night. Again, cocaine, ladies and gentlemen. So he actually refused professional help. And instead of doing therapy, he sat around reading books on witchcraft and sketched pentagrams all over the house while doing a copious amount of cocaine. Let the healing begin. He stayed up <laughs> for weeks. He stayed up for weeks. And here's the thing. Keith Richards dropped by and was floored by the amount of drugs David Bowie was doing. Well, wow. I'm going to say if, uh, yeah, if Keith Richards thinks that you have a drug problem, <laughs> then, then you have a drug problem. Yeah. It's like when Def Leppard kicked out Pete Willis for drinking too much. For drinking How too much. much. Was he drinking? Dickie, Dickie Betts got the hook from, from the Allman Brothers. If Greg Allman looks at you and says, Dickie, I think you've got a drinking problem. I mean, yeah, that's a... I really think about where that where that's coming from. Yeah, <laughs> time, to turn, time to turn that spotlight inward. You do way you do way too much cocaine. Axel Rose said to Stephen Adler. <laughs> so there was one point where he was actually hallucinating twenty four hours a day. Oh, he was also Sweet. this is this is kind of gross. He said he was also said to have at this time stored his urine fingernails and toenail clippings in the fridge and to have set sentry beside the fridge throughout the night to guard his fingernails or i yes what um wow. whether or not he truly believed that there were witches after his semen who planned to create a child that they would sacrifice to the devil which is probably pulled from the plot of roman polanski's film rosemary's baby but yeah he did that <laughs> Yeah. Huh. Yes. Well, that's yes. always been a worry of mine. So, I mean. <laughs> yeah. so I'm going to interrupt myself to take a short commercial break and we will be right back. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Long Shots Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. And we are back with David Bowie. Thank you so much to our sponsors. You can support the show by supporting them. So again, Coco came to his rescue. She would make sure that he had milk and orange juice and eggs in the morning. And she would hold a mirror up to his face to make sure he was still breathing. And usually it was the mirror that he had cut his massive amount of cocaine on the night before. When part of your job description is make sure your boss is still breathing. Yeah, right. I wonder how you got in that position. Yeah, yeah. Um... But whatever you think of Coco, she was actually keeping David alive oh, sure. at that time, so we should thank her. And even though Angie hates to admit it, Coco actually saved her life one day when David turned on her in a drug-fueled rage. 
uh, it actually had the assault actually happened when Angie happened to lose her temper with Coco. David claimed she tried to kill her. It was awful, Angie said. David was high, and I questioned Corinne rather sharply amount of, about the amount of baggage that she had assembled for her trip to Jamaica, and she snapped back at me, so I snapped back at her. Don't you dare talk to me like that, she said. And suddenly, David hurtled across the room, grabbed her by the throat, and started squeezing with both hands. He Good was grief. blindly angry, yelling at me as he tightened his grip, and I started to panic. I didn't feel like it was going to stop. And so Corinne pulled him off and saved me. So it's possible that I owe her my life. Wow. Oof. I'm, you know what though? Like I love David Bowie and it hurt me to write this, but it's the truth. You know, wow. yeah. this is, we don't, we don't try to paint anybody in a rosy light if they don't. No, 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 we certainly don't. Even if we admire them. And um, that's, um, he, but now he said that he thought she was trying to kill Coco. Is that yeah. what he, he? I think he just, I think she snapped at Coco. And he's completely fried and. Yeah, he's tripping yeah. balls. Yeah, he's, 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 no, he's no good in the brain department right now. And Jeez. so. Yikes. At this point, she also recalled Bo, as she called her husband, performing his own exorcism on the swimming pool, a ritual that led to all manner of terrifying paranormal activity, which allegedly resulted in a stain appearing at the bottom of the pool in the shape of the beast of the underworld so they moved how come we made a movie about this pool i need i need a movie about this i know pool. right <laughs> yeah i want to see the pool like take take the, the perspective of whoever out there like what if it is a portal to the underworld huh huh hey, all i'm saying i think we should write it it's like it's like children of the corn with a diving board <laughs> So they settled down at 1349 Stone Canyon Road in Bel Air. Uh, so they didn't have to bother with the devil anymore. So that was nice. I mean, I'm wondering if Satan was paying some of the mortgage. Yeah. And also, how do you explain that to the realtor? So we want you to sell our house. By the way, the devil's in the pool. Good luck. Yeah. Here are the keys. <laughs> Good luck. So since he didn't have to bother with Satan anymore, uh, he decided that he needed to focus on something else. And he found what was called the California Reich. A documentary that was made that year captured his imagination. It focused on a group of neo-Nazis based in Los Angeles and San Francisco. And it was such a compelling piece that it would actually be nominated a few months later for the Academy Awards. And it would also be screened at the Cannes Film Festival. Needless to say, David's interest in this movie is kind of puzzling given the far right-wing tenets of Nazi ideology, which include racism, which if you'll remember, uh, he typically only dates African-American women. Uh, homophobia, which, uh, you know, hate to tell you, David kind of swung both ways, and anti-Semitism. But he became fascinated by Holocaust denial, Nazi symbols, and the adoration of Hitler, and even a notion of a Fourth Reich. Wow. Okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, because he was also interested in other things, like did a UFO kidnap a Navajo County man? Travis Walton. Yes, fire in the sky, right? Yes, he was twenty-two year. He was a twenty-two-year-old logger working with six of his co-workers near Snowflake, Arizona, when he suddenly disappeared, and he was found five days later, claiming to be abducted by aliens. And his book, The Walton Experience, has been adapted into a movie in 1993 called Fire in the Sky. And that movie has one of the most realistic and creepy depictions yeah. of a an alien abduction. It is 
it's scary. Like it's it, it, like ugh, it's terrifying. And it has Robert Patrick. Uh, and the thing is, <clears throat> I actually know one of Travis's really close friends, and after spending an, an exorbitant amount of time with him, I honestly believe him. Like I believe Travis Fulton's story, and so did David Bowie. So, um, what else do you do in Los Angeles in the 1970s? Sex. Yeah. A lot of sex. Uh, lot, a lot of whole, whole the sex, <laughs> including with Ola Hudson, who's the mother of Saul Hudson. Do you nice. know who that is? I do. Uh, I do. Slash. Yep. Your second favorite guitar player ever. Yep. The guitarist for Guns N' Roses, for those who don't know, it's Slash. And he knows because he actually found them naked together when he was eight years old. That'll, that'll leave a mark. So. Yeah. <laughs> So let's move on to the Thin White Duke. He is primarily identified with Bowie's 1976 album, Station to Station. Funny enough, David was so high, he actually doesn't remember recording Station to Station. (laughs) I have never done so many drugs that I don't remember doing things. Like, there, what was it? Matthew Perry doesn't remember doing season eight of Friends. Or as a Carrie Fisher says, she doesn't remember... I can't remember. It was like an entire thing she filmed. And she doesn't recall it. it. Like yeah, postcards from the edge. Or I, I don't remember, but it was a similar mm-hmm. similar idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he doesn't actually remember writing or recording station to station. Wow. It's undoubtedly a masterpiece, but it was an album that he had no recollection of creating, probably because of the cocaine. The drug is usually the enemy of creativity, but somehow Bowie makes it work. And it's the sprawling six-song record was a triumph with his fans and has been a key part of his iconography ever since. Station to Station was being prepared for release and Circus Magazine interviewed Earl Slick about the upcoming world tour. A quote from Earl Slick in 1975. It's the smallest band of Davids I've ever seen. The first was two saxes, two keyboards, guitar, bass drums, drums, percussion. It's interesting. David's writing is going back in a rock direction, which suits me better than the R&B does because I like to play it a lot. And the tour is perfect for that because there's a lot of nice things the bands get to do. Another reason why I'm happy about doing this tour at this time is I have much more freedom, obviously because there's less people, plus the rock and roll. I can't help but feel good about this tour. (laughs) Bowie said, this tour is going to make an obscenely large amount of money, which I desperately need. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us what it is. It's like Billy Joel, remember? Yeah, he wanted to set up a production company, uh, Buley Brothers. So he was anxious to try something that he had never done which was work with a small band, perform with no set whatsoever. Don't use any production gimmickry, no sets. Just wanted to go out there and sing. It's exciting for me, and I want to see if I can cut it. My main consideration at this point is just to present upbeat musical shows. This will keep me amused. None of that depressive starkness of Ziggy and the Diamond Dog Tours. I'm sorry, I lied. Really, what can I say? Every time I've said I'm not going to tour again, I thought I've meant it. Nothing matters except whatever I'm doing at the time, at the moment. And that's what keeps me excited. Hmm. So he's got to travel to New Orleans to get to Jamaica for part of his tour. So when he reaches New Orleans, there were no arrangements for their accommodation. No representation was there to meet him. For Bowie, that was it. And he called Lippman and terminated his role as a manager. It sounds like he screwed up pretty badly. If it's his fault. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well that's the thing is that Bowie had kind of a string of managers mm. that all kind of failed him and to- he thought Tony was a good guy and he found out that kind of Tony took 
a lot from him. And then Lippman just seemed like he was kind of floating. So actually a quote from Lippman said, I spent most of my time working with him during the middle of the night. Most of those exchanges went well, but the week before Christmas, I was totally unable to communicate with him. I do recall dramatically erratic behavior when I was cut off from seeing him. He would not come out of his house, a house that he rented in Bel Air. From my personal observances, he was overworked and under a lot of pressure and unable to accept the realities of certain facts. It would manifest itself by remaining incommunicable. Our falling out came as a complete surprise. David can be very charming and friendly, and at the same time, he can be very cold and self-centered. So the Bowies proceeded to Florida, where they took a boat to Jamaica, and they saw the new point of view, which is Keith Richards' estate overlooking the Ocho Rios. Ocho Rios. Ocho Rios. A lot of uh, celebrities then had places in Jamaica. Oh, yeah. Do they? Yeah. It was a a pop. Well, it was at the time. Johnny Cash had a really big estate there. Keith Richards did. Jimmy Buffett. Did he? I believe so. Huh. May have. It's 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 a place with lots of rum and a beach. So yeah, I mean that 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 would figure. Sounds like his calling card. Yeah. Well, so most people, I won't say most, but a lot of people kind of agree that the height of David Bowie's career manifested the thin white Duke persona, which is people's favorite persona really? of him. Even though it's rooted in neo-Nazi <laughs> theories. Well, I I think maybe this is what I told you guys to think about was, uh, you know, our conversation at the end of the episode, I wanted you guys to be prepared to talk about David Bowie's personas and which one was your favorite and why. So, you know, the, people do like him. And I think maybe it's what came out of the Thin White Duke persona as far as creativity wise, not so much ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't really an ideology he was espousing, was it? I mean, it wasn't really, personally. yeah, no, no. It's and a character. I mean, he is in character, right? I mean, this is not, he's, you know, David Bowie's pr- pronouncing, I am a Nazi now. Well, hold on to that idea. Oh, wait, just, just wait a couple minutes and we'll talk about that. So hold on. Mm-hmm. Um, Station to Station, the album, which kind of spawned the, the character of the Thin White Duke was made in Los Angeles and living in LA, I think, was really bad for Bowie. I think it just burned him out. He didn't like living here. And people will, will point at this as one of the darkest times for him. So much so that he had kind of disassociated him from that era. And he kind of felt like it was another person when he looked back at it. So, like, he, he, didn't, he couldn't look at the, the persona of the thin white duke and say, that was me. He looked at it as somebody completely different. The album kind of feels mysterious, which enhances its charm. Its vast number of songs can be interpreted, helps assert the record among the upper echelons of David Bowie's discography. Uh, The record meaning isn't even crystal clear to Bowie, which may have something to do with the mountains of cocaine he was getting through. So I'm going to actually play Station to Station right now. And uh, just a warning to our listeners, there is a a very long point in the song at the beginning of the song, which sounds like static. So there's nothing wrong with your radios. It's just, this is how the song sounds. So here it is, station to station.
And we're back. All right. Yeah, I mentioned this in the break. I said that's very Talking Heads-ish. Yeah, and he is friends with David. Which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I cut the story out because it had no bearing on any of the other stories. It was just a cute little anecdote about how him and David Byrne and like six other people were crammed into a DJ booth. <laughs> and David was going through the DJ's records. And the DJ was like, do I smack his hands or do I just let David Bowie go through my records? <laughs> I think it's the latter. <laughs> so Bowie reflected on this dark period and the damage that it was doing to his body as well as his appearance to Dylan Jones for his book, David Bowie, A Life. I never really thought about whether or not a person could be too thin. Well, I certainly was at one point back in the 70s when I just ate peppers and drank milk. At various photographs of me looking skeletal, which remind me how badly behaved I was in the 70s. <laughs> and, and I can, uh, and feel free to cut this out, but I'm just sitting here imagining in my head. So the only thing literally that you take into your system is hot peppers, milk, and cocaine. I bet that makes for some of the foulest slams imaginable. Like I can't even get my head around. The most painful, at least. Think about all the- Yeah, and, certain, yeah, and probably, yeah, definitely the most painful. And I think Woo! they're all, uh, what's the term, laxatives, aren't they? Unless, oh yeah. yeah. Well, I don't, okay, I, I know cocaine is sometimes cut with baby laxatives, okay. so, so. Really? Yeah, but. Uh, so you spend a lot of time oh, at the can. Wow. Yeah, you just poop a lot. Why is this not like a thing anymore? <laughs> like, like the Atkins diet or the keto diet, the 70s like diet. The, the, the 1970s <laughs> diet. David, oh, Dave, wow, Dave, you've lost a lot of weight. How'd you do it? <laughs> yeah. So he would look at Polaroids that made him look even worse because, you know, uh, Polaroids are not known for their clarity <laughs> and their lighting. So he'd occasionally look at them and think, how did I get into this state? How did I ever survive it? So yeah, you can be too thin. I know some of those outfits and some of those characters were iconic. And I know the image was enhanced by that skeletal nature, but I wouldn't recommend it as a process. I wouldn't recommend it as a career template either. <laughs> so... Of all the cocaine records that have kind of tarnished a lot of artists' reputations over the decades, Station to Station somehow did the opposite, and it's actually up there with some of Bowie's best. And as mentioned by the title track, Bowie had first begin to had first begun to adopt the Duke persona during the year preceding the Young American tour and promotion in 1975. The persona looks are a character kind of based on his character from The Man Who Fell to Earth. So stylistically, he kind of pulled from that. The album features one of the greatest hits, Golden Years, as well as TVC-15. And that was recorded at the Cherokee Studios in Los Angeles. And he was preparing to take his latest character out on tour, starting off on New Year's 1976. So now we're going to listen to Golden Years right now, because Mr. Will the Thrill suggested it, and I'm taking that suggestion. And it's a great Uncle song. Arthur, but this will work too. We played Uncle Arthur. Stop asking me to play Uncle Arthur. We're not Arthur. playing Uncle Arthur again, Will. No more. <laughs> Once was playing. Thinking you know where Angel Look at the sky, life's begun Nights are warm and the days are young Come, 
loved you Opening doors and pulling some strings Walk luck and you looked in time. Never the big walk tall at Have an interesting fact about that song. Yeah, there was something I thought I knew to be the case, and I think it is that David actually presented that song to Elvis Presley, hoping he would record it. Elvis declined, or maybe Colonel Tom declined on his behalf, because who knows what was going on there. But David or Elvis apparently did write David a, a letter that said something to the effect of oh, you know, "All the best, have a wonderful tour, Elvis Presley," which. Bowie kept for the rest of his life, which wow. I, I, obviously I, I would have to. I mean, Elvis writes you a letter, you, you keep mm-hmm. it. But, um, yeah. but you could you could a million percent hear Elvis singing that song. Oh, absolutely. I was saying that it was more of a, it was vocally, it's Elvis Presley. It's, it's well, it's, it's, it's David plundering the lower end of his register. I mean, singing a little uh, considerably deeper than he does on most of his songs. Oh yeah, well, listen to the, the difference between Golden Years and Fame. Mm. right there's a complete departure from the sound that he was creating and then with golden years it's it's got that 1970s funk where he's not i would not classify this at all as a rock and roll record right this is that is definitely more funk and r&b so the big question was could he actually summon the strength, energy, and enthusiasm to pull off a major international tour because at this point he looked like as Leslie Ann Jones, who is the author of Hero, the David Bowie biography that I had been eating up for like the last four months, called him a walking corpse by the time he was ready to go out live again. And the thing was that Bowie would confuse a lot of his audience because the tour names kept changing. 
It was the station to station tour, the thin white Duke tour, the white light tour, and the Isolar tour. Isolar is, I'm, I'm gonna get to what Isolar means. It's, I, it's Italian for island, said David. So isolation and solar equals Isolar. <laughs> if I remember correctly, huh. I was stoned at the time. <laughs> Yeah, you're just making words up now, David. Bowen. Yep, all words are made up. And Isolar Entertainment was also the name of the new company that David and Coco were running after he dumped his last manager after what happened in New Orleans. So what did the Thin White Duke look like? According to Bowie, he was a reptilian, bitter and cynical who lacked emotion and empathy. He was the 1920s silent movie Dietrich meets 1930s Weimar Cabaret. Sharply dressed in black pants and a white shirt and waistcoat with slicked back hair and shark cheekbones. A very Aryan fascist type was David's take on him. Uh, he also called him a nasty character indeed. And that was David's point. He was 29 and trying to move on from a previous incarnation of the Technicolor alien Ziggy Stardust. But from a vantage point of today, the Duke would be an almost inconceivable character for a performer. This nobleman who had fascist leanings and appetite for cocaine so dangerous that it almost killed him also uh if you're playing along at home the drinking game of how many times we've said the word cocaine in this episode wow if you need to call an ambulance that's the point where you probably need we're to do up, we're, well, <laughs> we're, we're really sorry we're so sorry should we issue a warning of some kind? We might have yeah. to record a warning That's for this. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, Fleet Street journalist David Hancock was on hand to witness David Bowie's arrival by train in Victoria Station in London on May in 1976 when the artist became embroiled in controversy for apparently giving a Nazi salute. Of course, the gesture was denied as merely a wave. Following that, a slew of headlines extolling the virtues of Adolf Hitler and describing him as one of the first rock stars. You know, like the usual stuff that you do on tour? Sure, sure. Well, and, and again, just to go back to kind of what I was trying to explain earlier, calling somebody a rock star in, in one sense is not necessarily a compliment. Correct. Mm -hmm. You could be talking about the pull he has over crowds. You could be talking about the fame that he attained. You could be talking about the cult of personality that surrounds him. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's somebody you admire and want to be like. Um, and then I, I asked you this during one of the breaks, because I legitimately don't know, when Bowie's doing things like this, is he so deep into a character and to performance art that he carries things out like that? Like doing some Nazi salute from the back of a car and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Or is he just fried on cocaine and he doesn't know what the hell he's doing? Or did he mean it? I don't know. Because yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to excuse it if, if it's something he legitimately was doing or well, believed or thought. But it's yeah. like he's such he's so deep into characters that is this is he carrying this character to the absolute hilt and doing performance art even off the stage? I'm living this character anytime anybody sees me. I don't, I I don't I know can, the answer to that. I, can, I think I can sum this up by just saying that um, David was detained in Russia because he had a stash of Nazi memorabilia in his luggage. Oh my. So take that for what that's worth. And that, that got splashed all over the papers. That picture accompanying that headline, like 
But, yeah. Well, I was going to say, but there's not, see, it's hard because there's nothing about the way he lived his life that screams, I like Nazis. Right. Was it Keith Moon? Uh, in, in, in almost any sense, there's nothing about the way he lived his life that says that he actually believed their, you know, the abhorrent things that they did. Uh, but, but then again, maybe he did. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. His, his lifestyle dictates the antithesis of yeah. that right. ideology. So did the guy feel bad for like posting that picture and writing those articles and kind of sensationalizing this? He doesn't because in the end of the day, you have to sell the papers, right? Like he right. doesn't, he doesn't feel bad at all. His next album, Low, uses less narration, more abstract notions. And it was the first in his famed Berlin trilogy, which is inspired people to this day like Kanye West the national Beyonce the thin white duke had to die so Bowie could live and the one brilliant thing that David did do during this time was he actually took the advice of a tax broker and he moved his residency to Switzerland in 76 for tax purposes and it's pretty easy to see why is because okay here's a fun little lesson about California fun lesson we have great weather but federal tax bracket bracket was 81% at the time. And in the UK, the highest rate was 83. Switzerland's was 44. Yes. Okay, so uh, I know there are a lot of British artists who end up being tax exiles. Mm-hmm. Because they're, they had such, they're, I mean, they're, the, the tax rate on, on large scale earners like entertainers was so outlandish that it was that it was punitive almost. I, I want to say Queen were ta- tax exiles for a good chunk of their career. Every member of Led Zeppelin, except for John Bonham, was the Rolling Stones were. Um, yeah, I, so that part's not common. I didn't realize the top marginal rate in the United States was that high at the time. But okay, so that's, that's just interesting. So he moves to Switzerland. Yeah. So if he actually stayed in California during tax season. He would have to pay somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred thousand dollars in tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't do that. I can't. I can't do that and afford cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they 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 packed up and moved to what they called the cuckoo clock house, and they had, you know, it was Angie, it was Zoe, it was Coco, and it was right on Lake Geneva. So like really pretty. And then there David could paint, read and learn to ski and then just like have a fling with Charlie Chaplin's fourth wife, Una. Uh, Uh Huh? (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He had a fling with her and apparently she was in her fifties and he was in his twenties and she was, she was super (laughs) into this relationship. So uh, yeah, that was a a fun fact. Yeah, so Saturday, January 15th, and I believe we're in 1977 now, his performance in The Man Who Fell to Earth, Bowie was named Best Actor of 1976, shared with Gregory Peck for The Omen, which is really impressive. In the same year? Yeah, for the annual Golden Scroll Award presented by the Academy of Science, Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films at the Directors Guild in Hollywood. The third week of February 1977, saw the U.S. breakthrough for the band when they charted at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with the cover of Bruce Springsteen's Blinded by the Light from the Roaring Silence. Ladies and gentlemen, Manfred Man's Earth Band! 
the federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the podcast. I'm getting really good at hiding these things. <laughs> it's an art. It is an art. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so there are other things that are considered mythology when it comes to David. He, in fact, did not go to the wall, which is the, the Berlin Wall, to create the Berlin Trilogy, which is now the albums Low, Heroes, and uh, Loader have come to be known. The first of these three albums was actually recorded partly in France to exhaust a contract obligation. And David was recording with Iggy at the Chateau for the letters for the latter's album, The Idiot in May, 1976. And I, I kind of glaze over all this, but he was really good friends with Iggy Pop. And, and him and Iggy would kind of be essential to each other's sobriety eventually. So they went on the road for like 18 months with each other. I mean, can you imagine walking into a counseling center and being like, yeah, your partner's Iggy Pop? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, and yes, you know, they both cleaned up and, and credit to them. But at this point in history, it's uh, a little Not so much. Yeah. Uh, so Lowe, according to Visconti, remember Tony Visconti, that's his producer that we talked about a, a lot in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Like he said, it wasn't a challenging album to make. We were freewheeling, making our own rules, but David was going through a really difficult period professionally and personally. And to his credit, he didn't put on a brave face. His music said he was low. So he wasn't out there creating mbop when he was depressed. So... Low is, is a manic depressive album, which was savaged by the critics. It became a top 10 in several countries, including Germany, but not in America. In fact, his star was fading in America, and so was Angie. Because remember, Angie is an, his American girl. Hmm. In December of that year, there was a major showdown between Bowie and Angie, and she was trying to take a stand against Coco both of them are American and she felt like Coco had exerted too much control over David. Uh, She was ordering the cars. She was ironing the clothes. She was fixing the breakfast. She felt like she was the other woman, you know, Hmm. like, and so Angie gave David an ultimatum. So she came from Switzerland to try to patch things up and get him to come back. But that, that didn't happen. It was, David was given that ultimatum. It was her or me. And he was hungover. He was distressed. He was wailing that he couldn't survive without Coco and would later claim that David tried to appeal to her maternal side that maybe they should have more children, but that didn't work. And so she kept pressuring him, kept pressuring him. And what happens? He collapses. Uh, He was admitted to a military hospital with a suspected heart attack, which subsequently was dismissed as a false alarm. So thank goodness for them. Yeah, but he's doing cocaine like crazy. You can't rule that out. I mean, yeah, that's That's a big one. Yeah. So David actually went to Angie and asked her for a divorce in a formal meeting in a Berlin hotel with (laughs) Coco acting as an intermediary. Awkward. Which is super awkward. Uh, We were both drunk, and that's what she said after an interview when she left, when Angie left Celebrity Big Brother House in January 2016. Uh, We drank champagne, and then we went home together. We were both relieved it was all over. We went back to David's apartment. Corinne's suitcases were all over the place, so I did a a spot of rearranging out the window. (laughs) And the suitcases landed on a car outside, and, and then we had really good sex, and then I just effing left. 
That's about as David Bowie as this thing could have gotten. <laughs> I know. Yeah, she, in in the divorce, Angie ended up getting half a million pounds to be okay. paid in installments over the next decade. As alimony? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, half a million. I think it's half a million pounds. And then they have a child, paid. so child yeah. support, yeah. Yes, yeah, okay. so child And so according to Dana Gillespie, she shouldn't she didn't have a wherewithal to fight she couldn't afford good lawyers and he actually could so that's why she got that as a settlement also it sounds like he approached her so odds are he he already went to his attorneys and said hey we this is your this is an agreement like just sign on the dotted line and you'll be done you know yeah yeah and angie yielded custody of zoe she said she didn't want custody she would tell nancy odell outside the celebrity big brother house in 2016, just before David died. Oh, wow. It was just that I was never going to take him away from his father because they were as tight as can be. It's just one of those things, which is a weird statement because so far we've heard that he's been super detached from his kid. Yeah, he doesn't have much so, of a relationship at this point. So I don't know what changed. I, it wasn't in any of my research that anything had changed. I do know that eventually he does become a terrific father. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think we get into that in the next episode, but not quite we're not quite there yet uh as far as angie is concerned it was corinne or coco who killed her marriage a quote from angie this is a warning for any woman who lives with or is married to a rock star i thought i was being a friend and i thought she was my friend too but she stole my husband and she wrecked our marriage she sped it back all in my face gradually she edged closer and closer to david she was ordering the cars and ironing the shirts and making the breakfast. And I suppose I was pursuing other interests. So I would always be pressed for time and glad to let another do all the work. So as far as I'm concerned, that was my downfall. So from then on, for almost four decades, Coco basically manages David's life and his career. She's basically a personal assistant, right? Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, like, I feel like she's more than that. He's, but she's her the personal savior. I mean, she made sure he was alive. Yeah, I mean, to use that term sort of belies the role that we've seen actually in a number of cases with celebrities where they have someone helping them and they just can't function without that person. Yeah. You know? And I think, you know, look at the the, the most contemporary, I think for, you know, our generation would probably be the relationship that Ozzy had with Sharon. Yeah, I think it's a good example. And I'm sure there was an assistant somewhere in the mix who took care of their business affairs, you know? No, I don't know. Sharon's a very shrewd businesswoman. Oh, she is. Yeah. So let's move on to Heroes. Yes. Which is arguably one of David's most loved songs. And with good reason. But funny enough, this song only made it to number 24 on its release in the UK and failed to make the American Billboard Top 100. But it actually peaked at number 12 after his death in 2016. It's honestly regarded as one of his masterpieces, and it's the moment where he kind of peaked creatively. I disagree with that upon looking at Black Star, because I mean, of course, this that Black Star is so butted up next to his death that a lot of people don't recognize its genius as his lifetime. I don't know. Open can of worms here. Yes. I think it's impossible to look at a transformative artist like David Bowie and say, this is their peak. Oh, I How? Fully you, you agree. Can't. Yeah. Fully agree. Fully agree. But that's where some people think he, he peaked. Some people think he peaked at Ziggy. Yeah. Some people think mm-hmm. that he peaked at the Thin White Duke with Station to Station. That's what, that's the thing is like, you can point to a Bowie persona and go, that's where he peaked creatively. It, it's and- a- 
honestly, you wouldn't be wrong, but you wouldn't be right. It's it's really a matter of opinion. Uh, quote, quote, LL Cool J, don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. I mean, yeah. he never went anywhere. <laughs> yeah. The title song was written by Bowie with Brian Eno, and it was produced by Bowie and Visconti. The song Heroes is about a faceless person, the humble man on the street who gets his moment of glory. So now we're going to listen to one of David Bowie's masterpieces, and this is Heroes.
And as we mentioned earlier, you know, with The Man Who Sold the World was a great cover by Nirvana. This also spawned a great cover for the soundtrack of a terrible movie. Yep. Uh, yes. <laughs> Jacob Dylan covered it. And the yep. song is great. The movie. The Wallflowers. Yeah. The yeah. Wallflowers did it. And, and their version's really, really good. Yeah, it is. And they didn't change a whole lot, which is interesting when you it's have a cover that is still intact like that, but but excellent. Yeah. I think they just yeah, it's, say, it's a pretty it's a pretty faithful uh, cover actually, but I, I, think, I really like their version of it. I think they just incorporated different musical instruments, yeah. just giving it like a little bit of an updated sound too. Because like they had the, the that one has really been remastered. It's been remastered since, mm-hmm. but when when the Wallflower version came out, that was nineteen ninety seven. And Jacob, and, and I don't mean this as a cut at Bowie at all. Jacob sings the song a little more than David does. He talks almost for a part of it it's performing it i think we yeah. could be heroes just one day i mean it's not he's not really laying laying into it vocally yeah but but his but his, the way the delivery he gives it completely works and it's great i love it i love this one of my favorites of his see i'm just wondering like vocally if that has to do with the equipment that they had in 1976 versus what they had in the 90s you know or the fact that he had <laughs> He was fried and couldn't sing. <laughs> yeah. Entirely possible. So he was doing lots of, everybody get your shot glasses ready, cocaine. So ahead of that singles release, David and Coco flew to the UK on the 7th of September. What's that you say, LD? David Bowie flew? Well, yeah, for two reasons. Number one, because it's 1977 and he said he wouldn't fly uh, up until you know, after 1976 and nothing happened to him until 1976 so he started to fly again and he also stated that fear is not a word in my vocabulary anymore i am a man of great inner strength and courage these days david performed heroes on the last ever episode of granada tv's the mark show in manchester hosted by his old friend and rival mark bolan but in the end the show turned into a farce and when it came to recording the duet Bolin, worse for the wear, actually fell off the stage. And because the schedule didn't allow the sequence to be shot again, that's what was aired. At the end of the show, Bowie and Bolin went their separate ways, but tragically, they would never see each other again. In the early hours of September 16th, Mark's jet lag girlfriend, Gloria Jones, crashed the Mini that she was driving him home in. She had a concrete post on a Barney's humpback bridge, and he was killed immediately by a steel pen puncturing his temple. Oh, God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oof. Four days later, David would attend Mark's funeral at the London Golders Green Crematorium. Now, Tony Visconti was outraged by the proceedings, feeling that fan hysteria had made a mockery of the occasion. And he was also surprised to see June Bolin there, which was Mark's estranged wife, who had been banned from attending, but had managed to smuggle herself in. Now, I told you. If your wife is barred from attending your funeral, then I think estranged is putting it lightly. (laughs) But Yeah, well, it is confirmed. And this is a story that I'm going to tell you, knowing fully that it does not put David Bowie in a fantastic light. This is confirmed by a close friend of David and Mark's that David and June actually slept together on the night of her almost ex-husband's funeral. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for that story. That's, you know, but it's, it's backed up. So I hate telling it, but it happened. February 1978 kicked off with a confidence trick 
David said yes to David Hemmings when he asked him to star in the movie Just a Gigolo <laughs> because the actor-director assured him that he would get to perform with his idol, Marlena Dietrich. But sadly, they never shared so much as a single frame together because she would shoot all of her scenes in, I think, France or London, and he shot all of his stuff in Berlin. So they never even shared the same frame together. And she's the famed Dietrich of Paramount Studios, correct? I believe so. But David shrugged it off, saying that the flick was my 32 Elvis movies rolled into one. (laughs) He does love Elvis, doesn't he? Somebody was supposed to do Elvis this year, but yeah. What part of Berlin did he he, uh, frequent, I wonder? He was very close to the wall, like like markedly so. Like a couple blocks, I think, from, from the wall. Interesting. Enough to see the hot figure skaters on the other side, or? I don't think the wall was that short. Okay. David set off on his most ambitious tour yet, the Islar 2 tour, the Low slash Heroes tour, or the stage door to promote the Lowe's and Hero album. Bowie and the band flew to San Diego, where they had two days to rest and last-minute preparations for the show opening of the tour. A quote from him said that, Bowie told the Chicago Tribune that the show would be low profile, nothing very dramatic visually, no characters. I've finished with characters. Now it's just me. Got it. So there's the answer. I think he has put the nail in the coffin of personas. So are you guys ready for a fun fact? Fun fact! Fun fact! A ticket at the Inglewood Forum in Los Angeles in 1978 cost $8.75, which is now... $37.94 in today's money, which seems really low. That that would be extraordinarily low for a concert ticket. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that's different. (laughs) Like the the inflation doesn't fit, right? I mean, for a major act, for a person, for for a name as big as his, I mean, you you guys have been to see some of the biggest people that there are. I have too. And you know what you paid to do it. So it's a lot more than 37 bucks. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Moving on to Lodger, it's the 13th studio album by David, and that was released on the 25th of May, 1979 by RCA Records. After an eventful year that saw the release of two studio albums, Low and Heroes, and he was also doing a ton of side projects too because he was helping Iggy. He was working with John Lennon. I mean, he was he was a busy little beaver. He was all over the place. Yeah. He, and, you know, he's got... He still had to deal with uh, the situation with Angie, and he's got Zoe. So, I mean, he's busy. Like his and, life, is and, and and then also, you know, sex and cocaine. Yeah, we gotta make time for that. Makes for a packed schedule. So, this is gonna be the final release of the Berlin trilogy, and the album was recorded mainly at Mountain Studios in Switzerland in 1978. Most of the same personnel from the prior albums would return such as future King Crimson guitarist Adrian Bailu. Bailu? Bailu? Adrian Bailu? Bailu? Bailu, I'm not sure, yeah. Yeah, uh, would join the tour. So Lodger was a modest commercial success, peaking at number four on the UK album charts and number 20 on the US. It produced four singles, including Boys Keep Swinging, and the innovative music video was directed by David Mallet or Melee. I don't know which one it is. It seems fancy. So, yes. so, so here's an interesting question. This is late 70s. There is no MTV yet. 
Correct. Whom, whom is he shooting this for? Is this for them to air on top of the pops and stuff? Or well, there's there's a couple. There is top of the pops. There's top pop. There's there's a couple other shows, and then they're done for just you know the the music videos were done for just what do you call it promotional reasons. So you know you would create these things, but yeah, MTV is very close. We're close to MTV, but I, I'm thinking like I know there were a couple of British shows that played that would play videos the top of the pops being the one that that's the most yeah. popular i guess and then i guess there, there there were some channels that would just they would in fact play like kind of standalone videos almost to fill time occasionally yeah I think. yeah yeah so like so like, so like he's sandwiched between like a rerun of andy griffith and the walton rob <laughs> here's da- here's I, I, know I'm, I think it's more like black adder and faulty towers <laughs> so but yeah there were three music videos for the four songs and the whole album again kind of mixed reviews from the critics many calling it the weakest of the berlin trilogy over the years they've garnered more favorable reception has kind of grown up through you know for it but it's one of david bowie's most underrated albums now rca released the lead single from lodger boys keep swinging with fantastic voyages the b-side on the 27th of april 1979 and is it was it almost uh one that's that and you hit this occasionally that was a little ahead of its time so much so that critics kind of don't know what to take of it well, when it yeah. comes out then in yeah. retrospect later they're like oh wow we were stupid this is really good well yeah because the promo video was actually eventually banned by MTV when it came along because it it was a very gender bending video and included David and other drag queens which was, which was not a thing that they were going to play then right? yeah yeah sure. so eventually RCA actually refused to release the single in the U.S. Oh, so wow. we're going to hop on to Boys Keep Swinging because I genuinely really like this song. I really like the energy. I think it's something that's completely different from David Bowie's normal catalog. And so I'm going to play Boys Keep Swinging. Yo! 
All right, and we're back. Now, what we discussed during the break is that the video for Queens I Want to Break Free, several years away, right? 1984. Yeah, is... That was a good bit bit lighter, yeah. But even then, that plays to what you had said, TJ, about, you know, the music video at this point was not MTV, but when it was MTV, the video for I Want to Break Free got pulled for similar reasons that this video got pulled. Right, because when MTV debuted, they were... They were uh, showing a lot of videos that were British. a couple of years old that, that are, are, are like LD has been talking about that were done for promotional purposes that were shown on top of the pops and stuff, I guess, that they got the rights to air. But they were really restrictive in a lot of ways. And I think maybe next episode is where LD is going to get into David calling them out on that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> to their face mm-hmm. um, on their air. Yep. And then the the thing about this music video is if you go back and watch it, the one moment where it's just, I am given life is David Bowie dressed as a woman snatching off his own wig. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, it's funny you say that because we started the heavy hitter series out with Eddie Van Halen and we discussed that their video, Oh Pretty Woman was banned from MTV because now it's, it's bizarre. (laughs) It features a humpback, making an emergency phone call to the band to save a woman who's tied up to a pole and being groped by little people. And Eddie's dressed like a cowboy and Dave is Napoleon. And I think Alex is Tarzan. And you, but the reason that they didn't show it really is because it's revealed at the end that the woman being groped by the two little people is not a woman. It's a drag queen. It was a, I, I don't remember the name, but a very popular Los Angeles drag queen at the time. And so they, they were squeamish about that at that point. And even if you get forward to 1984, when, when Queen spoofing a British sitcom dressed in drag, they wouldn't even show that. So, yeah. yep. Interesting. So February 8th saw the beginning of the Scary Monsters and Super Creeps recording <laughs> session at the Power Station in New York. And during a break, Bowie met with the Elephant Man director, Jack Hofsis. I'm, yeah. I'm just gonna I'm gonna borrow a quote from you. It's almost like, in some ways, his career is being charted via Mad Lib. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he met with the director of the Hell. <laughs> yeah, that's not the most random thing ever. Yeah. So yeah. So David Bowie met with the director of Elephant Man, and he told him that the guy who is currently doing the lead of John Merrick would be leaving the production in July. So quote from Bowie, he asked if I would take over the role. I'd never met him. I didn't know he knew anything about me, but apparently he had seen a few of my concerts and felt that I'd be able to undertake the role successfully. If you want to take the risk, I'd love to take the plunge. A quote from Jack Hofsis. I was familiar with his music and I had seen him in concert, but the piece of work that he did that was most helpful in making the decision for me was the man who fell to earth. I thought he was wonderful and which the character he was playing was an isolation similar to the Elephant Man's. His preoccupations about the part and his interests were all so good that we decided to investigate the possibilities of doing it. So Tuesday, March 11th, after weeks of recording backing tracks and overdubs, Tony Visconti prepared a rough mix of the tracks in the various stages of completion, which was stuff like Kingdom Come, which was a cover, I Feel Free, which was actually a cream cover. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. Is There Life After Marriage? Uh, laser and its game number two. Bowie opted to take a two-month break to compose the melodies and lyrics for the remaining tracks rather than improvise, which is what he'd done in the past. And he decided to finish the album in London. So, you know, pack up and move. 
All right, you ready for a fun fact? Fun fact! Fun fact! Pete Townsend came to play on Because You're Young. 30 minutes later, he was finished and out the door. He told Bowie that Space Oddity, remembering the demo that Bowie had given to him in 1969, was sure to be a hit. <laughs> he gave it to Pete Townsend? Yeah, he gave the demo for Space Oddity to Pete Townsend. He was like, that's going to be good. <laughs> So with the bulk of Scary Monsters backing tracks completed, he accepted the invitation to promote Crystal June Rock, a brand of sochu, which is a Japanese distilled spirit, which is kind of like vodka. Uh, he would appear in two television commercials speaking four words, which is Crystal June Rock Japan and provide the music. The shoot took place over two weeks at a temple in Kyoto, and he was asked why he agreed to do the commercial. Bowie. Three reasons. The first one is that no one ever asked me to do it before. And the money is a very useful thing. And I think it's very effective that my music is on television 20 times a day. Yeah, the New York Times announced that Bowie would be making his American stage debut in the touring company of Elephant Man, playing a week in Denver, followed by a month in Chicago. Quote from Bowie, the whole thing happened so fast that they decided to take me as Merrick. I'd forgotten about the whole thing after Hobsus had seen me. But when I get a call within two weeks of having to go over and start rehearsals, so I couldn't do very much. So I went to the London hospital and went to the museum there and found plaster casts of the bits of Merrick's body that were very interesting to the medical profession and the little church that he had made and his cape and his cloak. Nothing much that you can get from that, just the general atmosphere. So he like went and did his research on this character. Sure. Uh, Bowie flew to San Francisco to watch Philip Agum's last performance to John Merrick and then joined the company for two weeks of rehearsals. He was allowed to kind of ease into the part with a week-long run in Denver. The play was a sellout, garnering good reviews and a standing ovation for Bowie. Even so, he actually had misgivings about his performance. Bowie, I was furious with myself on the first night that the things that were preoccupying me during the performance was how people were adjusting or relating to my body movements and that I, I could be considered not a character at all. It took a good week to shake that feeling off and become interested and involved on stage with Merrick. Okay, fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. During the Chicago run of The Elephant Man, Bowie watched Roy Orbison at the Park West and invited him to play the following night. He also attended a party at Scampi's, a restaurant in the lobby of the Hyatt Regency, where he and Orbison sang happy birthday for his promote for Orbison's promoter, Jam Productions, John Wakelamp, Wake Camp, Wheat Camp, Wyatt Camp. Good Lord, this is W E N B C. Okay, I'm gonna spell this name. It is W E I T E K A M P. I got I got Camp. Wheat Camp. Wheat Camp. Wheat Camp. Yeah, I don't know. Oh Lord. Maybe the idea of Bowie and Orbison hanging out is kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah, and singing happy birthday to somebody. So now we're going to switch focus because Bowie is, you know, currently kind of touring with this, but got, he's got scary monsters coming out, dealing with uh, all this kind of promotional stuff. So let's talk about a bar. All right. Billy's is a gritty underground nightclub, which was underneath a brothel in Soho. And Tuesday <laughs> brothel. Oh. Tuesday night saw the birth of a new London club scene, which was all about expressing yourself through clothing, hair, makeup, didn't matter how old you are, if you were a boy or girl, didn't, didn't matter. 
It was started by Steve Strange and Rusty Egan. Bowie's Nights, which was a club for heroes, featured the music from The Normal, Kraftwerk, Sylvester, Broxy Music, and of course, Bowie. Now, the club didn't last long due to its popularity, and Egan and Strange actually had to move it to a bigger venue in Covent Garden, which became the infamous Blitz Club. Regulars were Boy George, Simon LeBon, huh. Princess Julia, and you know, those guys would go on to influence music and fashion for the rest of the 1980s. But Boy George was interesting was a major player in the club scene in in the late 70s early 80s and tremendously tremendously influenced by david bowie yes Mm. actually there's a point coming up in just a second i mean you're probably asking yourself why am i talking about this bar (laughs) well because billy's evolved into what i referred to earlier as the blitz it was a second world war themed bar that sprang from a wine bar on queen street and george o'dowell which is boy george was actually one of the biggest uh, proponents of that club and it only lasted from february of 1979 to october of 1980 but the blitz was to the 1980s what liverpool's cavern club was to the 60s and in a sense, it kind of helped define a generation. So at this point, David is 33, the father of a nine-year-old. At what moment did David actually decide to borrow back inspiration from the kids that he inspired? He never said. But Fierce Instinct for Survival told him that he now must allow them to teach him about what he is inspired. He had recorded his new album at the Power Station in New York which was Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, but it wouldn't be released until September when David's contract with RCA was up. And the jewel in that crown was Ashes to Ashes, a sequel to Space Oddity. Now, I'm going to get back to why that bar is important in just a second. So the song he explained to BBC Radio 1 personality, DJ Andy Pebbles in New York in 1980, it has always been, he's always been reluctant to banner wave for any particular cause, but there was honestly an alarming amount of heroin abuse that was happening in the recent years. It was having a devastating effect on people, and that has just never changed. But David wanted to kind of shine a light on this. So thinking back to Major Tom and Ashes to Ashes, he described Major Tom as an individual in a situation that you can't cope with and he doesn't want to come back. Major Tom still meant a great deal to him because that was his first time succeeding and creating a credible character. In the song, we return to Major Tom after a decade only to learn that his dream has soured. So, And that is, that is flipped on smack. Yeah. And that's the thing people always argue was Major Tom a junkie. Well, Dave says he was in the song. Yeah. Yeah. So why am I bringing up that bar? Because for Ashes to Ashes, he decided to cast everyone in that music video from that bar. So he went one night and checked all the kids out. And from that, he picked Visage singer Steve Strange, along with Darla, Jane Gilroy, Elise, and Judy Franklin. And Boy George was there that night and was completely gutted that he wasn't chosen by Bowie to be in the video. He didn't pick Boy George? No. So Ashes to Ashes was directed by Bowie and David, the 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 mallet or melee. And it was one of the most iconic music videos of the 1980s. 
And it was also one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive music video of its time. What is that? Uh, for, the, for its time, it was probably the most expensive. And it was, because this is very early MTV, because I guess you're, we're into, what, we're in the 79 or 80 now. Yeah. Um, visually, I mean, obviously, technology was not then what it is now, so there are parts of it that look a little dated, but for the time to actually do something that thematic with a video was so uncommon because it, I, almost nobody else had done that then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they, they it, it was videos were mostly most videos were performance videos. Mm -hmm. It was just people lip syncing. Yeah, and there'd be some fireworks and some boobs and whatever. <laughs> but David, that was actually thematic. He he's one of the first to say, "Hey, you know, I could um, instead of just me standing there and lip syncing, I could actually make this into a little piece of art or a miniature film." Yeah, yeah, Bowie. Uh, the so yeah, two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah, two hundred fifty thousand pounds at the time which I only think was dethroned in 1997 by Michael Jackson's Scream, or it could have been Thriller. I think Scream was the most expensive at the time. Um, Scream was the most expensive at the time. I think Thriller, and then I want to say Madonna's Express Yourself was a really expensive really? Uh, video. I, that, I, for a while, that was the, the most expensive video ever made, and I think Scream surpassed it. And then I'm sure other, many others have surpassed it since then, but... Yeah, but I was I was completely floored when I found out the Scream was one of the most expensive. Like you look at you look at a um, Thriller, and it was so impressive, I yeah. guess, because it has uh, its own half-hour documentary <laughs> done about it. So Bowie describes the shoot himself and the Blitz Kids marching toward the camera in front of a bulldozer, symbolizing oncoming violence. Now the story about that was that they were actually filming on a beach, and they found this sort of abandoned bulldozer. So they ended up finding the owner and they just cranked it up and kind of chased the kids down with it. So it was kind of an improvised moment. So this, this, I, the symbolizing oncoming violence, I think that was a, a little bit of a hindsight kind of thing. And although it appears that Steve Strange is taking a bow as he walks behind Bowie, he's actually trying to pull his gown that he's wearing away from the bulldozer so it doesn't get caught up and kill him. Jeez. The scenes of the singer in a spacesuit, which suggest a hospital life support system and others showing him locked in what appears to be a padded room may be references to both Major Tom and Bowie's new rueful interpretation of himself. Contemporary to popular belief, the old woman that's lecturing Bowie at the end of the clip was not his real life mother. Uh, MTV ranked the song's music video at number 58 on its 100 greatest music videos ever made list in 1999 and on september 1st bowie began three weeks of rehearsal for the broadway run of the elephant man taking over the role from jeff hyenga bowie's also preparing for his upcoming appearance on america's most popular talk show at the time which was the tonight show with johnny carson december the 6th andy pebbles who we talked about a little bit before who did the bbc one interview with david bowie just a couple pages back actually interviewed John Lennon and Yoko Ono at the Hit Factory about various topics, including Bowie and the Elephant Man. A quote from Lennon. Amazing guy, isn't he? I must say I admire him for the best repertoire of talent the guy has. You know, I was never around when Ziggy Stardust became a thing because I had already left England while all that was going on, so I never really knew who he was or what he was, and meeting him doesn't give you much more of a clue, you know, because you don't know which one you're talking to. But 
and you know we all have our little personality traits. So it was him and me. And I don't know what was going on, but we seem to have some kind of communication together. And I think that's great. The fact that you could just walk in and do that. I could never do that. (laughs) And this acclaimed Lennon interview would be broadcast to millions on BBC Radio One in January of 1981. He could have never imagined at the time that he was recording it, that just two days later, what would happen after the session took place? About January of 81? No, December 8th of 1980. Of 1980. Okay, now I, yeah. So do we, do we all know what happened on December the 8th, 1980? It's when he was shot, wasn't it? Yep. Yes, it was. Yep. Yeah. And Lennon's assassin had been to see David as the Elephant Man on Broadway. Oh, that's weird. Um, he had a, like a... And the news was broken to the world by Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football. Yeah. Yep. There was a playbill with David's name circled in black ink, which was found among his possessions in his room, along with uh, two photographs of David taken as he exited the stage door. That's Uh, very creepy. Yeah, he also had a hit list that featured other names like Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, and David Bowie. Oh, geez. Chapman had... Chapman had planned, he said, to hang around waiting for John to return to the Dakota on West 72nd, where he would shoot him dead. And if John failed to show up, he was going to go down to Central Park West to the intersection with Broadway and the New York Coliseum, cab the dozen or so blocks to West 45th at Times Square and apprehend David as he was leaving the theater and kill him instead. That's Lord of mercy. And well, and there's no there's no way to get in the head of an evil or crazy person like like he was or both uh, or whatever he was. Um, it's weird that you have a hit list and then you murder a person and you just kind of stand there until you're arrested. I I, I have a hit list of all these people I'm going to kill, but I'm just then I'm just going to kill one and then just stand there and be arrested and not try to run. I, I don't that that's weird. And I, I, that's super creepy. I did not know that angle that 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 uh, that David Bowie was a Plan B. Wow. Yeah, I don't think he knew he was a Plan B. But how terrifying is that? Extremely. Yeah. yeah. And again, spinoff world. Can you imagine if Lennon doesn't show up in front of the Dakota? Yeah. And Chad right. goes down to Broadway and, instead. Yeah. And does do and does do that if he's able to get to him. Of course. This is part of the reason that it's it's so imperative that if you're in the position that these folks are, you have to have security. You can't, yeah. I mean, you can't, they can't just, well, why don't they just live in regular neighborhoods and walk among us because of, because of, because of this. Yeah. This is this, this is why they can't. This is why we can't have nice things, kids. Hmm. Right. Um. Yeah. I mean, it, it's crazy to think that he would have just like that was going to be the day that day he was like this is the day that something's going to happen wow uh and i'll tell you last podcast on the left has a great series on john lennon and mark david chapman it's mainly focused on mark david chapman so if you're interested in learning a little bit more about his mindset that's a good one to check out i will say they're a little bit more vulgar than we are 
yeah, just but, a touch. Um, just but but I adore them. I think they have a really good research. So. Well, I mean, if you, I mean, if that's what you want, I mean, I can certainly rise to that occasion. I just, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll just have a side podcast. We'll just start another podcast where it's just my brother cursing and farting the whole time. Yes, we'll call it blowing smoke. We'll call it cussing and burping with my <laughs> dumb drunk brother. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you said it. I didn't. So. Uh, I think that this is a pretty good place for us to stop this week. Uh, We will get more into the 1980s persona. And like I said, I'm doing my best to try to consolidate this information as much as possible. But there's only so much you can do when you're dealing with a life like his. Yeah. This was 18 pages and we only got through five years of his life. Yes. Yeah, well, and you're also, you're also dealing with a period of time when he did, was you said 13 albums in five years or something ridiculous. Something, something ridiculous like and that. Just having, and just snorting mountains of cocaine and having sex with every, almost literally everyone. And, um, and he's appearing on Broadway and yeah. film and apparently trying to exercise the devil out of his swimming pool and which is a whole other thing somebody's got to watch those fingernails and urine that are in the refrigerator because if he doesn't who will yeah so on that I note might, <laughs> i might ask i might ask swimming pool devil if he'd watch my pee for me but i mean yeah double book them like hey satan can you just watch my, my fingernail clippings please before we wrap up, I just wanted to have that small discussion that we talked about, which was who is your favorite David Bowie persona? So, uh, Will Thrill, why don't you start us off? Well, I must admit that a lot of the info that you've given us in the last couple of episodes has been new to me. I knew of the personas. I roughly knew some of the music associated with them, but it was hard to sort of pin that all together. Uh, I will say that I do have an honorable one. I know we talked about this. You don't consider it a persona, but I think it's important. And that is his character from Labyrinth. It's Jared. not a persona, He though. played a character. a character. I'm giving it honorable mention because I think people in our generation, it might be their first association with David Bowie. I'm going to say that. So having said that, I, I think the best music came out of the Thin White Duke era, in my opinion. Yep. Yeah. I just, for personas, I mean, I feel like he's almost a early version of Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, adopting these personalities and living in them yeah. for so long and, and interacting with people. And in a, in a way, it's supposed to be satirical. You know, it's supposed to draw out those things that they, they see in society and sort of bring attention to them. So I, I do have to go with one of the original personas, though. I think this one always sticks with me and creates a fantastic story. I, I have to go with Ziggy. Okay. I have to go with Ziggy, so that's going to be my vote. Okay. All right, TJ. Okay. Um, again, uh, as Will just said, if we're talking music, it's hard to look past what he produced during the Thin White Duke era, the Berlin trilogy. I mean, that's uh, those are all, all that's their three masterpieces um, that that are remained hugely influential to this day. Still, some of the best music um, you'll ever hear. Um, so if we're talking about the music produced during the era, it's probably the Thin White Duke. Okay. Very close second would be, would be Soul Man, however. Okay. Because I love, he called it Plastic Soul, and I think he did that because he's very deferential towards the African-American musicians that influenced him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm not on their level. They're, that's Soul, and I'm doing Plastic Soul. And I'm like, no, David Bowie did have a lot of Soul. 
and and records like Golden Years and um, some of the stuff he did where where he had Luther Vandross singing background. It's very soulful music. It's it's great, um, and I really like a lot of it. Um, I think the 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 funniest character to me is Halloween Jack <laughs> because of the because of of what you called the barbecue red space mullet. Partly, and the eye patch, the Joni pirate eye patch, and I think it's loosely based on of of he was. I think he was reading 1984. He was yeah. reading something. He was reading Orwell, and there was something that he read in 1984 that kind of spurred him to create the Halloween Jack. And it was a very short-lived character, but I, I'm going to have to go with Will for pure character. I don't think you can beat Ziggy. Mm-hmm. That was his first one. It was um, so different than anything anybody else had ever done. That was how he, he had his first hit, was, was sort of in the persona of Ziggy, and then he killed him. I, okay, fair enough. Yeah, so I touched on a lot there, but if we're talking music, Thin White Duke, Soul Man, most influential to me probably is, is Ziggy. And then I just think, I just think uh, Halloween Jack is just funny. Okay, well... I have to go in the complete opposite direction of funny and go blind prophet. Okay. Probably one of the most moving characters that he embodied, but he also embodied them for a very short amount of time. Uh, Very, very short on that one. Very short because we got Lazarus and we got black star out of that. Mm -hmm. But I have to say uh, I am in the minority where I do love Ziggy. I think Ziggy is incredible. And he killed him to make room for my favorite persona, Aladdin Sane. Okay. Because on that album, you have the prettiest star. You have the Gene Genie, Panic in Detroit, uh, Lady Grinning Soul. Like you have some incredible music, but also that's where we get the David Bowie iconic lightning bolt from. That's the right. era. That's the... That's the I, image that you have that most associates with David. Yeah, it, it is. And Aladdin Sane is almost an extension of Ziggy. Mm, yeah. In yeah. some ways, I've, I've always kind of thought it's al- it's almost like Ziggy was a stepping stone to Aladdin Sane. They're, 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 it's like they're cousins or something. Yeah. Yeah. The reincarnation of. Kind of. Kind of. But it, it's sort of a, Ziggy was sort of a preamble to Aladdin Sane. And they're both great. I, but I almost, I almost think of them as one and the same. I shouldn't because they're not. But yeah, so there, that's, there are a lot of similarities between the two. Yeah, so that's that's kind of where I stand. Is that you know, if if we want to go introspective, mm-hmm. it would be the Blind Prophet, which I think I would have loved to have seen more in that movement. But we, of course, sadly, we will never get to see more of that. But he would have killed him off anyway. Yeah. He would have. Halloween Jack, I was just sitting here thinking about it, almost looks like maybe a booty-chasing pirate from the Star Wars cantina. Ah. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I could see that, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm in the There's, just, there's something about the image of that one that's just, it's, it's, it's funny, and I don't even know why. Halloween Jack is, is an interesting character to me. It's, it's, he's so thin in that, though. Like, he's incredibly thin. Like, stylistically, like, exterior looks uh thin white duke is definitely an attractive gent but he looks kind of like pat riley kind of (laughs) yeah 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 with the slick back hair and the i feel like the thin white duke would be the kind of guy that every room he'd walk into 
someone would hand him a white Russian and he'd just throw his jacket and that'd probably. be it. <laughs> yeah, probably. I could say that. So, so yeah. So that's our discussion for the week because I mean, holy cow, I can't end on John Lennon's death. So <laughs> that's fair. I mean, it's it dark. It's this this episode was incredibly dark. So, so much for five years. Jeez. And it's five only five years of his life. I haven't done what David did in five years in my whole life. In four like in, in the 41 years that I have been alive, I have not accomplished what David Bowie did in five while on cocaine. Maybe oh. you should do cocaine. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, you know, I would, but I kind of like food and jobs. Yeah, I was going to say, I actually, actually don't. <laughs> Not having a heart attack or... But we're, you know. I was say, but we're, we're covering all these super, super productive artistic people, and they all do lots of coke, so I'm just telling you. Can't I just be myself? <laughs> sure. <laughs> we have a moderately successful podcast. Isn't that good enough? <laughs> all right, so we're going to close out now. Uh, if you guys think that we're doing a great job, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Our Twitter is at rock and roll LT, Instagram rock and roll heaven LT, Facebook rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. Guys, say good night. Good night. Bye, everybody. And Thank you guys so much for checking out this episode. Make sure to check out the next 30 episodes that we're going to have on David Bowie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to close out today by playing David Bowie's song that we just talked about, which is Ashes to Ashes. Thank you guys so much. See you next week.
If you're looking to move out of your parents' place, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive, which is good because your little brother has gotten really territorial. You're blood-related. You'd think it would be fine to share food in the fridge. I mean, who writes their name on every individually wrapped slice of cheese, Tyler? Still, you've got to admire the commitment. So bundle your renters and car insurance with Progressive and use the savings to help you move out and have all the cheese you want. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 